So it's June 15th, 2014, and it is Daddy's Day. My little Abigail asked me when Daddy's Day was a few weeks ago. She probably heard somebody talking. I said, baby, Daddy's Day is every day. <laughs> it's just one day of the year that we take emphasis off Daddy and put it on Mama. That was Mother's Day. 364 days a year is Daddy's Day. Oh, I love being a daddy. I love my father in heaven. I want to be like him. I hope you want to be like him. I want to be like him. He's altogether lovely. Those that will hear this message online or repeated, however it gets repeated, podcast, whatever it might be, they will have missed out on a very great blessing. I'm going to tell you we have church a long time before we preach. Was worship good in this place today? Watching the arising church give testimonies. Is that not church? Hearing that the Richards watch cancer get crushed. Is that not church? Oh. I could never go back to my daddy beat your daddy in dominoes. I just couldn't do it. No more robes and rituals for this pastor. I want the unadulterated power of God. And I found out what it takes for that is a broken and contrite heart. What it takes for that is an ever-present acknowledgement that we are nothing without him. And yet, if he is inside of us, we can do all things. Oh, church of the living God, you should be excited this morning. Our message is called Few in Number, One in Purpose. Few in Number, One in Purpose. Turn with me to Exodus 40. We're going to start in verse 12. Say there when you are there. I'm going to encourage you, don't nestle in for the nap. Don't, Don't tune out what is bound to be a heavenly command. We're getting larger every week, but we're still small enough for me to come find you. Amen. Amen. (laughs) It's best to pay attention in small churches. In Exodus 40, here comes verse 12. Bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance to the tent of meeting and wash them with water. Then dress Aaron in the sacred garments. Anoint him. Come on, say it. Anoint him. And consecrate him so that he may serve me as priest. Bring his sons and dress them in tunics. Anoint them. Come on, say it with me. Anoint them just as you anointed their father so that they may serve me as priest. Their anointing will be to a priesthood that will continue for a few short years and then die out. Oh, it's going to continue for all generations to come. The anointing that was on the Levitical priesthood was to go from generation to generation. The apostle Peter applied this concept to us. He called us a holy nation, a royal priesthood. Something that had previously been reserved in title only for Israel was now applied to this crazy Motley crew. Mixed multitude. In this room, we have men and women from other nations. In this room, we've got black and white and yellow and red and whatever Matthew is. In this room, we are not black Christians and white Christians and Asian Christians and Mexican Christians and Serbian Christians. In this room, Christ is all. He's in all and we glorify him in all. Whatever my identity was before, it is faded into the background of Christ. Whatever my occupation was before, it's been swallowed up in Christ. The fathers that have gone before us were anointed. And that anointing has been passed on to us. And it is our job to pass on that anointing. Somebody say amen. Amen. It's supposed to go for a few generations. It's supposed to go for all generations. In the name of Jesus, 
Daddy may not have done it right. Granddaddy may not have done it right. You can play the blame game all the way back to Adam, but it's going to be done right now in the name of Jesus. These kind of holidays are a tricky bag for a pastor. One is thrilled to death. He loves his daddy and he's sitting in the congregation next to him. Another loved his daddy very much, but his daddy is now in the kingdom of God and we are still standing upon the earth saying kingdom come. And yet a third, when they think of their daddy, is sitting there and to him, the daddy was simply an abuser. Somebody left them that indebted and with a bad name and a hurt heart. But our Heavenly Father is not like that. And we are going to raise up the generations of the righteous. There will be a legacy, not just in this place, not just in Chicago, not just in submission ministries in Virginia, not just in King's Harvest in Baton Rouge. There will be a legacy around the globe. We will have one association, and that is Christ Jesus. Amen. Turn with me to Psalm 45. When you were there, put your finger upon the 16th verse and say there when you were there. Amen. There it is. In Psalm 45 and verse 16. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. Somebody say amen in the house of God. Sons are supposed to take the place of their fathers. We're supposed to raise up those after us that can carry on the work beyond us, further than us, and for years beyond us. Because we're going to perpetuate his memory throughout the ages. What an interesting psalm this is. It's about the king of Israel and his chosen bride. And if you have eyes to see, it's about King Jesus and the church. And our job is to perpetuate the greatness of our God from one generation to the next. This morning, a dear friend, Lynn Johnson, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, texted Jennifer and I. And I sat in my study and I'm supposed to be studying and I'm crying on my Bible and smearing my ink. She sent me Ephesians 3, and we're going to start in verse 20. Say, there when you get there. Lynn Johnson, we effectively, affectionately called Lenny Pie. She had, has a sweet spirit before the living God. She is the wife of Justin Johnson. Many of you have met her when they came here to speak. Justin is on our oversight board, and in the name of Jesus, Justin will plant, continue, and further the work of God in Baton Rouge, and we will join hands and do it together. This is the verse that she sent me. It's starting in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more, How much can you measure, church? How long is your tape measure? I got one that is 300 feet sitting inside of my truck right now. Immeasurably more. You can have a 12-foot tape measure. You can have a 36-foot tape measure. You might have one of those little wheels that counts feet as you roll it. But you cannot measure what the living God is able to do for us. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Where is his power at work? Let us not stand back and ask God to do something that he has empowered us to do. Where is his power at work? Then we have a responsibility. To him be glory in the church, not to the pastor, not to the Oh, goodness, the first lady. Not to whoever's sitting with purple hair on golden thrones on stages. To who be the glory in the church? Jesus Christ. The ministry must center on Jesus. 
We have a job to do. His power inside of us, His name, authority, character, body of work, and reputation exalted in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout a few generations. We need to teach this way of life. We need to hand it down from generation to generation, spiritually and otherwise, that Jesus is exalted. I don't want a Learjet. I don't want an Escalade. I don't want a fancy suit. I want men and women who are chasing me from behind with the baton of the living God they've been handed, trying to pass me up. I want to chase after my brothers in front of me that have done this for years before me, better than me, wiser than me, more fervently than me. They've blazed a trail, and I don't want to be left behind. The apostle Paul didn't say, I'm walking a good walk. He didn't say, I'm crawling a good crawl. He didn't say, I'm army belly flopping it. He said, I ran the race. I fought the fight. There is a race, friends, from one generation to another, and it's our job to set the pace. Since I got born again, I've heard everything from, you got to slow down, son, you'll burn out. So many worldly wise men have come around and said what we can't do. I haven't found anything we can't do in the name of Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you on this Father's Day to think on what it is that we are fathering. Sometimes, sometimes in our lives we start well and we run well for a while, but our habits change. I met this older woman in a gym. Now, two things are unbelievable about this. The first is that I was in a gym And the second is what I'm about to tell you. Now, in this room, we have people well into their 80s. We got people well below eight. So I don't know what older is to you. But I think this woman was as old as anybody in the room. I say I think because I didn't want to ask her. And I was on a treadmill. Miracles never cease. And I looked over in this woman that had all white hair, white eyebrows, and more chins than a Chinese phone book. She was wrinkled up, Matthew. She looked like she needed some moisturizer. But in her eyes, there was life. And in her mouth, there was life. She was a young soul trapped in an older body. And while I was on the treadmill, you're not going to be ready for this. She's standing in front of me, and she's stretching. Bam! Full out splits. I got off the treadmill. And I walked over, and I said, Hey, I I couldn't help but notice what you just did. Are you all right? And I cannot demonstrate this. But at first, left leg was forward. She hopped up. She goes, Yes, what do you mean? Right leg forward. Bam! Splits again. Oh, Lord, have mercy. I actually, the reason I was in this gym was I was employed there in Lafayette, Louisiana. And uh, I was worried maybe she injured herself. I didn't know what was going to happen. And then I realized that this woman could do this at will. And so I asked her in that moment, ma'am, how is it that you can do that? She said, I've been able to do this since I was a little girl. I said, I don't think you understand what I'm asking you. I've met a lot of little girls that can do this, but how is it that someone as wise as you are can do this? She said, I started when I was eight, and I never stopped. I never woke up one day and decided that I can't. Oh, friends, we got to learn to pass that kind of spiritual power on. I don't care if you can do the splits. I can't do the splits. But what you do when you are first born again should not be different when you're 100 years old. The same spirit is in us, and he is the ancient of days. He's not maturing. He's not retiring. He is the power of God unto salvation. We don't need more anointing. We need better men 
that take care of the anointing that is inside of them. We need to stop reasoning out God. We need some consistency in our walk. Could you put Acts 21 and verse 14 on the screen? I'm going to go to a different scripture, but I just... Last night we were struggling to stay awake. Matthew was burning incense before the Lord as we were driving down the road. And I, of course, was praying. We were listening to the book of Acts. And this verse just so stuck in my mind, I thought, Almighty God, if there was anything that could be said about life-changing ministries, I wish this would be it. And I realized it is very much up to us. The Apostle Paul had been called by God to go to Jerusalem. He had been discouraged on two previous occasions, but nevertheless kept going. And now a prophet named Agabus has come down from Jerusalem to Caesarea where Paul was at. And he begins to speak to him. And he says, hey, the Jews are going to bind you with a belt. They're going to hand you over to be persecuted. And then Luke and Agabus and Timothy and whoever else was with Paul begged him not to go. How radical is the call of God on your life? Is it radical enough that there are people that would beg you not to do it? They loved him. And they were scared for what he may have to suffer. They were scared for what he may have to endure. But then comes this little line. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. Oh, church, do you have a spirit in you that can't be dissuaded? Do you have a call of God that will outlast those who are trying to slow you down? You will always have detractors in this world. If you ever tried to do anything, movement creates friction. It just does. Somebody's not going to like it. Somebody's not going to like you. That's how it works. But we have a job to do. Those of you that are daddies might know somebody else may not like your parenting style, but then after all, this is your responsibility you're raising up. At best, what they have for you is advice. But I keep my own counsel called the Word of God on how to raise children. And I'm proud of what has happened. Paul could not be dissuaded. He wasn't consulting Dr. Spock. He wasn't consulting the latest church growth scenario. He wasn't uh, uh, succumbing to the latest psychological wind to blow through the church. He could not be dissuaded. He knew that if he set an example of sacrifice, others would follow. He knew that if he had an undying passion for the Holy Ghost, that nothing would hold him back. And even when his own friends turned on him, his next sentence is, man, why are you causing me to weep and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to go to Jerusalem, but to die there. Do you have a call of God that you're willing to die for? Because that's the kind that's worth passing on to the next generation. This ridiculous fertilizer pile that is success now and success then and passing on success. There's so many heaps of it in this town that it stinks to heaven. What we're supposed to be passing on is an outward focused life. One that cares more about our neighbor than ourselves. One that is not looking for a sevenfold return. They're looking to give seven times more. They don't appeal in a gospel of greed for a fishing of funds. They look to liberate. They look to elevate people's lives. Oh, church, that would be worth passing on. The truth is, we are going to pass something from generation to generation. There's no way around it. Every Father's Day, I have to visit this subject. I can't help it. You might not have known who your daddy was, but he passed something on to you. Even his absence can pass something on. Turn with me to John 8. Say there when you're there. Come on, Tina's still here. Where's the rest of you? She drove 27 hours to be here. In John 8, let us pick up around verse 25. 
Who are you, they asked. Just what I've been claiming all along, Jesus replied. I have much to say in judgment of you, but he who sent me is reliable. And what I have heard from him, I will tell the world. When Jesus was asked who he was, he could confidently say, just what I've been claiming all along. We need more fathers that are not on on Sunday and off on Monday. Off on Tuesday and on on Wednesday again. Super spiritual dad on Wednesday and Sunday and carnal pig on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday. We need more men of God who are consistent enough to say, Son, it's what you've seen in me all along. The testimonies that made a difference in my life were when a man can stand and say, For 20 years I've trusted God and he's never let me down. The testimonies I've never quite understood are those that gambled with God. And if they got a payoff, then they were excited. If they didn't, they went back to the world for a while. They raise up twice the sons of hell that they already are. They multiply hell in people. I want to multiply the kingdom of God. Oh, talking of fatherhood. John 8 speaks of fatherhood. And we find some amazing things in it. Let's keep reading here. Say verse 27. They did not understand what he was telling them about his father. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. When a man is crucified for the call of God on his life, others begin to see the sincerity of that call. Why can we not avoid persecution, church? Persecution is the great revealer of masculine holiness. It's the great revealer of the consistency of character. It's the great revealer and refiner of the Christ that is being formed in you. It's in moments of difficulty that we find out who we really are. It's in those same moments of difficulty that what we are is put on display. To those around us. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Oh, fathers, hear me in this room. What you are most consistently is what your children will be. If you don't like what your children are, go look in the mirror. Hear me, pastor and fledgling pastor. If you like to complain about your church, and you run down the members in conversation with other pastors, understand they are whatever you have consistently taught them to be through your life. I read in the book of Genesis that everything gives birth according to its kind. You will never find a monkey give birth to a rabbit or a rabbit to an elephant. It doesn't happen. We give birth according to our kind. How important is it that fathers be consistent in the house of God? In verse 31, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Do you hear the call for consistency? To those who believed in him, he said, if you hold to my teachings. This is a far cry from today's decisionism that says, if you once believed, that's all that's required. Oh, well, you'll give birth to something, but you won't like what it is. It'll be as hypocritical. It'll be as weak and as lukewarm and as dead as so many sons already are. But I want to be a son of God. I want to walk with the fire of God. I want to speak the words of God. I want to do the deeds of God. I want to show the world my father. And when you look at a man's son that's really a son, you see the image of the father. You can't help it. Debbie Mays is here from Chicago, and she said, it is so weird watching Judah. He's not you, but he speaks, and the words are the same. His voice is different, but he even has that attitude you have (laughs) we reproduce according to our kind there's no way around that 
The question is, what kind are you going to leave the world with? By the time you get down to verse 41, listen to this. Shocking. You were doing the things your own father does. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and now am here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not so clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. I want to tell you that every child wants to carry out his father's desires. From the time you're raising young people, the first thing they want to know is if they can do what you do. They may even resent you if you won't let them do what you do as fast as you do it. How many of you were foolish enough at one point as a child to ask your dad if you could cut the grass? Oh, what a mistake we made. We wanted to learn to do what they did. We wanted to be like them. Everyone wants to be like their father. The question is, who's going to be your father? The Hebrews are so practical. They back into this. They say in a completely different way. In Hebrew, if you have practiced a bar mitzvah, you have become a son of the command. You know when you're a son of a command? Not when someone says you are. But when you can read it and understand it and demonstrate that to the community, then you have become a son of the one that is guiding you and it shows in your actions. We say son of God and it's purely for us, sometimes in our theology, a positional statement. I don't look like him. I don't act like him. I'm nothing like him. But I'm telling you from a theological standpoint and a very technical legal argument, I am a son of God. I'm not here to argue the merits of that, but I am here to test the fruit. You can tell me that you're a deer, but if you have feathers and you waddle like a duck and you like to eat with your face in the water, I'm going to say you're a duck. You know a tree by its fruit. These people said, we're not illegitimate. God is our father. And what did Jesus say to them? The devil is your father. And why? Because they wanted to do what he did. So let me ask you, church, do you want to do what your heavenly father does? Because fully mature adults don't fall out of the sky. God has a method for this. Now, I know all of us were children at one time and we were told babies were flown in by the stork, right? And the stork visited certain families more than others. But as you grew up, you found out that a baby had to be conceived. Somebody had to labor to see that baby born. And then people gave up the next 18 years of their life in the most selfless thing that human beings can do. They put someone else's needs before them every day. I got to tell you, being a, a father was not such an easy thing. I thought it would be easy. I thought Jen would do all of the work. And so far, I've got her to do 98% of it. But that other 2% is overwhelming. (laughs) When those diapers say for 15 to 25 pounds, that really is about all they'll hold is 15 to 25 pounds. You have to change them at least once a week, Judah. They get sick, they throw up on you. About the time you're telling everybody how cute they are and all... You know, they wipe their nose and eat a Twinkie with the same hand. It's terrible. It takes so much work. But if you do your job well, one day they carry a name to a next generation. One day they further the plan of God. All saints, it's Father's Day. What kind of sons are we going to produce? Turn with me to Deuteronomy, the third chapter. Say there when you were there. Pick up with me and say verse 26. But because of you, (laughs) the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That's enough. 
the Lord said. Do not speak to me anymore about this matter. This is funny. This is Moses whining. I mean, he's just flat out belly moaning and wailing. All parents get frustrated with their children. It happens. I, not so long ago, had one son stab another son. And then the other son is more concerned about his lifting restrictions and when he can go back to work than healing. Jen said, what did you do? I said, well, uh, what would you like me to do? She goes, I don't know, but we should do something. I said, well, I'm faced with, do I exterminate my entire family line here? I mean, it doesn't get any worse. One stabbed the other one, and the other one's living with the consequence of it. I think they're both equally guilty and beat up. What do you want me to do? Sometimes you just commend it to the hands of God and say, could you help? Moses has now lived his life. He's run his race. He ran hard after the finish line. And he's looking at this mob that is his. And he realizes, I ran 26.1 miles, and I'm not going to get to run the other tenth of the mile, and it's your fault. I mean, this is the last day he's alive. And what is he saying to his progenitry? (laughs) Because of you, I can't go in the land. I love that God lets us see the flaws of leaders. It gives me hope. I can do something wrong 10 times in a day. If Judah is working with me and he hands me the wrong wrench, Dustin, it's like, golly, son, what are you doing? I might have reached for the wrong wrench four times before that. Sometimes we have a higher standard for the next generation than we hold ourselves to. We blame it on a good desire to make sure that they're going to grow up right, huh? Listen to what God said to him. That is enough. This is Daddy God speaking to Daddy Moses about the children. Shut up. I don't want to hear it. You ever want to see that played out? (laughs) Young Aragenas, when you have a baby and you're whining about what your baby JL did, and you're looking at Boz and you're saying, I can't believe it. She kept me up all night. You say, hey, that's enough. You got a baby. Be quiet. This is the heart of a grandfather. A grandfather looks and says, mercy, 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 mercy. A father says, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. (laughs) I'm not saying God doesn't use both. I'm simply telling you by virtue of the fact there's a grandfather, a son, and a grandson, evidently we can't kill them. Right? Right? From one generation to the next, we're learning. And there may even be benefit in seeing the stages of growth between the generations. It's nice to know that a mistake you make early on in your parenting does not necessarily damn your son to a life of terrible living. I dropped one of my two, I'm not going to tell you which one, on their head. His mohawk's been a little crooked ever since. Jen says, is he all right? I said, kid's got a head like a coconut. What are you talking about? He's my baby. I'm worried. And I'm like, <laughs> did you hear that sound? Thud. <laughs> you never know what goes into raising a child till you have to do it. Listen to what God says in verse 28. But commission Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he will lead this people across and will cause them to inherit the land, you see. Oh, if we think about this, Joshua was similar to Moses. He was not the same. Joshua had a different temperament than Moses. Joshua's wisdom was different than Moses. Joshua's prophetic element didn't seem to be as strong as Moses. But you know how they were similar? They both led the people of God. And one generation raised up the next. We don't need cookie-cutter sons. I love that the arising church is similar and yet completely different. Those guys are talented, good-looking, 
I still buy my jeans at Walmart and would not dream of putting conditioner in the few hairs I have left. It's been more than 20 years since a European styling gel touched my hair. But I sense the same anointing and I see the same leading in them. And I love it. Do you know why? Because when you raise up sons, they will carry out their function. They're not supposed to take on your function. They're supposed to be similar to you, but they will take on their function. Moses led the people in a few wars, but mostly Moses' job was revelation. Joshua got some revelation, but mostly he led the people in war. We're supposed to raise up generations after us, and they're not to be cookie cutters. They're supposed to have their own function. And you'll see how they relate. But they should be allowed to be altogether different. But maybe this is the most important thing. You know what Joshua did that Moses could not do? Go in the land. One day, the generation before you's race ends. And wherever they stop, you will go further than they did. That's how this works. You better raise your sons in the faith well. Because they will go places you can't go. And you want this. This was a promise to Isaiah. In the 59th chapter, in the 21st verse, he says something to the effect of, this is my covenant with you. I'll put my word in your mouth, and it won't depart from your children's children. From generation to generation. We'll have the same spirit moving us. We'll have the same word moving us. But we'll be as unique as fingerprints are unique. Come on, church. You can't make an assembly line. You can't have a cookie-cutter factory. There is no franchising of the gospel. It doesn't work. The Sutherlands have come here, and there is so much that we have in common. And I love that. But I appreciate the things we do not have in common even more than the things that we do. When the Piros came here, it was such a shot in the arm. It was amazing. We have so much in common. We have even more that is not in common. This is the diversity of God being displayed among us. And it's how it's supposed to be. So often, what it means to be someone's spiritual son is that you have the Bible translation they have, that you have the suit they have, the haircut they have, the facial hair they have, or no facial hair that they don't have. It means that you look like a little rubber stamp of them. That is not real sonship. That's some strange kind of... I don't want to say what it is. Let me say it's not sonship. I'll try to keep it positive. I do have a couple elders out today, though. I feel like my leash is longer than normal. (laughs) And yet the spirit in me is telling me to be good. Turn with me to Titus 1.4. Most of you have not, well, no, I can't say most of you. Those of you that went to Mexico, and especially the ones that came from Chicago, sleep has been a fairly rare event lately, hasn't it? I will not waste your time this morning. We're going to get right to the point. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Those not thoroughly acquainted with the Scriptures might be surprised this was not spoken to Timothy. Titus, my true son in the faith. I don't want to talk terribly personally about Titus, but the scripture says he's not circumcised. That's an interesting thing to say about a man. Why would we go so far as to include that in the holy word of God? Because Paul had another true son in the faith, Timothy, and he was circumcised. And the point being, you did not have to become a Jew to be a son in the faith, and you did not have to be a Gentile to be a son in the faith. You could be as far apart as Jews and Gentiles and be a son in the faith. What on earth could this teach us? When we think on such things, when we think about Titus, we need to know that true sons are rare. Of all the people named in the Scripture... We could see so many. We could have called Demas a true son, but he's not. In fact, he said to have fallen away. 
We could have called Trophimus a true son, but he's not. In fact, it seems that that was not the case. How about Philitus? So many in the faith, but only a handful are called true sons. Turn to Mark 6 on the topic of true sons. Say there when you were there. I heard something of this in Tina's testimony. Not Mark, but the principle in Mark, which I wish to illustrate. In Mark 6 and verse 39, Then Jesus directed them to have all of the people sit down in groups on the green grass. They sat down in the groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were... They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was five... Thousand. You know one characteristic of a true son? He's never satisfied. 5,000 people followed Jesus. But when he gave them just a little something to eat, they were satisfied and done. They got all they wanted from him. But some followed so closely that they never would have settled for fish and bread alone when somebody had the words of life. You want to know whether you're a true son or just a follower? The true son is insatiable for the deposit the father has received. He's insatiable for the things of God. He doesn't believe in a minimalist salvation. It says, look, I'd just be happy to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. That's a devilish, damnable statement. A true son, somebody like Timothy, somebody like Titus, Wants it all. Let me see the good, the bad, and the ugly, Dad, so I can learn what not to do from you. I can learn what to do from you. I can learn how to do it better. I can learn how it didn't work, how it does work. Let me see it all. Joshua stayed in the tent of meeting a long time with Moses. But when Moses had had enough and went to sleep, Joshua stayed. Insatiable hunger. You want to find a true son in the faith? You want to create true sons in the faith? The Word of God needs to be sufficient. And without all of the Word of God, they should feel insufficient. Do you hunger for the Word? Or do you just need enough of it to fend off conviction? How about Matthew? Look at Matthew 28. Last chapter of Matthew, right before the Great Commission. Pick up with me in the 16th. Verse. Where are the rest of you? You can talk in church. White people notice that the people with pigment in their skin are speaking and yet they're not dying. You can speak too. It'll be okay. Nothing about being fair-skinned disables your tongue. Matthew 28, 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Does that hurt a little bit? Jesus is resurrected from the dead, and they've seen him. And some worshipped, and some doubted. Are you feeling good and judgmental about them yet? (laughs) How can they do that? Let's not forget, he gives them a great commission. And they doubted, but they did. Do you hear me? The gospels come as far as you because of only 11 men that took it. And although they doubted, they did it. A true son may doubt from time to time. But his doubt doesn't kill his doing. I have done it with my knees knocking together. Trembled, scared, Pretty sure that God may be willing to do it, but he couldn't use such a flawed vessel as me. Problem is, is I was the only one there. I was surprised that he was willing to use even me. True sons may doubt, 
but they don't fail to do. Are you hearing me? They're insatiable. They fight through their doubts and get right into the doing. In 1 Timothy 1, 2, we see that Timothy is also called the true son. It's 1 Corinthians 4, 17. Timothy, a true son in the faith. For this reason I am sending to you, Timothy, my son, whom I love. Do you think Paul loved him? He wrote it in the holy word of God, who is faithful in the Lord. How did Timothy learn to be faithful? From watching Paul. He will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. A true son in the faith is not just familiar with his father's doctrine because doctrine never saved anybody. Jesus Christ did not resurrect from the dead to give you perfect doctrine. I know men that can cross their T's and dot their I's theologically, but when it comes to walking out the truth of the faith, they are worse than infants. A true son in the faith imitates a way of life. And that way of life that Paul had, he got from the heavenly father. And now he had given it to Timothy. And Timothy didn't fail to raise up others. The expression of that way of life looked different as the men looked different. But they were insatiable for the truth of God. More than they were insatiable, they fought through their doubts and did. More than they fought through their doubts and did, it resulted not in a month of their life, it resulted in a way of life. Are you raising up sons and daughters that have your way of life? And if so, are you proud enough of your way of life that you want to pass it on? Oh, that we would be filled with the Spirit of God, church. I don't have a single good thing to pass to my kids. Those of you that are very proud of your family name, I hope you never really look into your genealogy. I got to tell you, when somebody slept with the mailman, they didn't usually write it down. I got more of a family bush than a tree. And I'm not really sure that the name on the bush is even my name when it comes down to it. But I'm pretty certain of my heavenly lineage. I'm pretty certain of the royal blood that is coursing through my spirit now. And I know what is worth passing to the next generation. And it's got nothing to do with my DNA. It's got everything to do with my G-O-D. I want to pass on a way of life that has been the very best thing that I can imagine. Everybody said, I couldn't marry her so young. Most didn't think it would work. A couple hundred people at our wedding, nearly a couple hundred thought it was a mistake. But my father told me how to do it. I was a bad husband too, selfish. Not unlike some of you husbands. I thought my wife was a trophy to carry around. I was excited how pretty she is, and I liked to show her off. And I loved her as long as everything went exactly like I thought it should. But when it came to the deeper truths of the faith, I don't mean your eschatology. I mean dying to self and putting her needs before mine. My father had to teach me because I hadn't exactly picked it up from those that went before me. But it did. And my sons are growing up with a different view of women. A different view of a helpmate. They don't see an eternal covenant as something that is set aside over inconveniences. They don't see family as disposable. They see us as locked in a life and death struggle with the powers of hell and that we need to stand together. It's an amazing thing. You know, as I think about these things, I can't help but ask a question. In today's time, are we really raising up sons? I mean, when it comes down to it, we have a great man, a great building on a great day for a great price. And you have to wonder how many people in the congregation are actually sons. 
Do they really do better than Jesus? Because Jesus had 5,000 out there. And there's no way to make a biblical case for any more than 70 of them being sons. And then when you get down to who was actually at the cross, we've got a handful that were sons. Whittle it all the way down to the upper, the, the uh, resurrection speech where we get the Great Commission. And how many were there? Eleven. One of them had... Eleven. Eleven of 5,000. Friends... Those 5,000 weren't sons. They were a crowd. They were easily satisfied with the minimum. Give me some bread and fish and I'll be happy. I'll follow you anywhere for some food. Fill my stomach. But the sons wanted to be exactly like Jesus. This is not a commentary on anyone else, but I do start to wonder. I think our church is destined to be a certain size. Boot camp will always be smaller than the officer's corps. I don't feel insecure about that or inferior about it. And I'm proud of men that have handled huge numbers in godly ways. And they've surely existed through history. But in our time, do we have to ask something? Does Jesus judge the quantity of our work? Or does he judge the quality of our work? Could we put 1 Corinthians 3, 12 on the screen? I want you to hear how it said. If any man builds on this foundation... What foundation are we building on? On Christ. Praise God. He's the foundation. And for some people, if they've got a foundation, they'll in faith call it a house and not worry about anything else. Christ is the foundation, but that is not all there is. On that foundation, we are supposed to build something. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw... His work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with, say, fire. Fire. It'll be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quantity, the quality of each man's work. You know, I'm going to confess I am not a great daddy all of the time. I've been known to even trick my kids. I promised Abby I would take her to the store and get her a toy. She did what I needed her to do, and I was driving towards the store. And I said, which, what do you want? She said, a certain kind of doll. And it was a bunch of money. I didn't realize dolls cost that much. <laughs> Apparently, Americans, American dolls cost more than... Yeah. Americans, we're something else, aren't we? We even think our dolls are worth more than the rest of the world. I said, you know what, sweetie, I could. I, I, I could get you that doll. She's beaming. I mean, I love my little girl. Or we could go in that store over there and I could get you any ten toys you want. <laughs> oh, daddy, ten toys? Yes, baby, ten. Ten of any you want. You're the best, Daddy. You're the best. And we went to the Dollar General and had a great time. (laughs) Friends, you got to ask yourself something. Do you want to give birth to an awful lot of straw? Do you want to conceive an awful lot of wood and hay? Or would you like some gold somewhere in your life? See, sons are gold. Crowds are hay and straw. I'm not even sure that they're not going to burn up in the end. I'll let wiser minds than me tackle that one. I simply want to say that Jesus had 5,000 followers, but only 11 disciples. This says to me that we need to beware of quantity and look heavily at quality. I want the number of people that the pastors and elders in this church can effectively disciple. Because at the end of our lives, I want to leave behind sons, not crowds. Crowds are fickle. They run after whoever is filling their bellies. And in today's climate, the ones filling their bellies are these ridiculous pimps that are prostituting out the church with promises of riches. You know, teachers love pupils. (laughs) They do. But there are teachers in this world that... When they love pupils, they have a hard time when they mature. 
Do you know what I'm talking about? We have found more orphaned ministers than I can count. While they were their pastor's right hand, while they were helping build the church and serving in another man's vision, another man's vision, it was all golden. When they developed a vision of their own, oh, you got to go, man. Get out of here. We'll disassociate ourselves. They're called disloyal. They're called rebellious. They're called so many things. It occurred to me this morning that there is an animal that lives on the earth that does that. These things. When they give birth, the mama has to hide the children from the daddy because when they get big enough, the daddy will kill them and eat them. That's not a border generation simply because we're too insecure as fathers to actually raise up adults. We don't need to keep people small. We need to let them step on our knees, shoulders, and head to be as tall as they can possibly be and take our pride in where they carry the gospel. Otherwise, you really end up as beastly as this thing. You know what the sons of God do with these? Manuel, I bet you can guess. They finish them. <laughs> you take aim, you steady your hand, and when the man hesitates, comes a voice from the back of the crowd that says, finish him. If you place your shot well, all you really have is the head of a beast. Little David came carrying the head of a beast. And you know what that caused the king to ask? Whose son are you? Oh, church on this Father's Day. We need to cut off the head of those kind of beasts. We don't devour our young. We fight for their success. Somebody say amen. amen. I've noticed that these kind of teachers have a fascination that is followed by an assassination. They're fascinated as long as they have something to teach and the student thinks they're great, but the moment the student has matured, and should be a son, they assassinate. You know what else does that? It's fascination followed by assassination. Sin. It looks great at first, but it puts you to death in the end. Is this really the ministry model we want, or do we want from generation to generation to carry something through? I think you've got the point, so I don't want to belabor it. But I do want to say this. I don't care what it costs us. I don't care what we have to give up. I died in Christ the day that he called me his son. And now we live as a ministry to produce sons and daughters around the world. And they will be as unique and as different as the people in here are unique and different. And yet there will be something similar about us. I got the paperwork finalized for the one association. It's sitting on my kitchen table. The one association churches is a real thing from this point forward, even in the eyes of men. And there are going to be churches everywhere that unite around the baptism in the Spirit, an undying love for evangelism to the nations and as a lifestyle here around historical orthodoxy, and we're going to join together and do things that makes the world stand back and take notice. Could you put Galatians 5.14 on the screen, and we're going to soon come to a close. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature does what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. I don't think there's ever been a spiritual father that woke up and said, you know, I want to be guilty of eating my own. 
I don't think there's ever been a man that said, you know, I'd like to run my race well for 20 or 30 years and right at the end see if I can screw it up in colossal fashion. But it happens all of the time. What is the difference according to Galatians? You can want to do a good thing, but if you are not controlled by the Spirit of God, you do not have the ability to do it. This means you have to be as dependent upon the Spirit of God in the last day of ministry as you were in the first day of ministry. God is so kind to us that He trains us in the beginning by making sure we have such great want, such great need, that you have no choice but to depend on His Spirit. But as soon as we achieve any level of success in our own eyes, we have something else warring in our members. I say it's time to return to being filled with and led by God's Spirit. Did you know that Romans 8.14 says, As many as are led by the Spirit are the sons of God? What kind of sons do you want to raise up? You want to raise up the best educated, the best financed? Or do you want to raise up those who are led by the Spirit in the best possible way? I had intended to talk to you about Paul and Barnabas, but we're not going to do that. We'll save it for another day. I would like to just summarize in a narrative the idea that Barnabas is in the faith a long time before Paul is. Barnabas is actually given a commission long time before Paul does. Barnabas goes and gets Paul and brings him into his work and vouches for him. And then only a few chapters later, Paul is beginning to outshine Barnabas. And this is to Barnabas's glory. They part ways and Paul goes and gets Timothy, a true son in the faith, and Silas. Barnabas goes and takes John Mark from a scared kid running from the garden naked, a deserter in the faith on the first missionary journey, and turns him into the writer of the Gospel of Mark. It is to the glory of a father when his son surpasses him. I'm very proud today because I'm sure that a long time after I'm in the kingdom, standing with my father who is now there, I miss Gary Kinchin. I love him. That the rising church will be taking this further than I ever did. And that is to the glory of the sons of God. Can you say amen to that? Amen. I'm going to close with Galatians 3. Get there. We'll be in the 26th verse. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. When you began to trust Him, you were awarded sonship. But then it goes on to say, for you were all baptized into Christ and have clothed yourselves with Christ. That sounds like you must become like Him. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. It sounds an awful lot like you lose your identity in His. I would like to say that we're going to carry on the generations. We're going to give birth according to our kind. They will be similar to us, but they will carry out their own functions and they will go to places that we can never reach. When we're looking for sons and when sons are looking for fathers, it has to be an insatiable desire for the kingdom, not the minimum, not whatever it takes to just barely succeed. One that wants to go all the way to the cross. Amen. We're going to be patient with each other because even true sons doubt, but their doubt doesn't keep them from doing. When I speak with Nick and Gabriel... Sometimes I hear that they're having all the same problems that Matthew and I had. But I'm encouraged they don't let those problems keep them from moving forward. If you are looking for a, a congregation, if you're looking for a calling that is problem-free, they don't exist because you're in it. But we move past our doubts and we do what he said to do, even if it puts us to death while we do it. That's the goal. 
We learn to imitate the way of life that has been modeled in the generations before us, that took faith across the oceans, that took faith to people of different nations. And it's not a teaching on a Wednesday or a Sunday. We're not teaching centers. We teach a way of life. We model a way of life. True sons are few in number. But in the name of Jesus, we're one in purpose. Matthew 5 and verse 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Not peacekeepers. There's no way to keep peace on the earth. That would be to presume that you were already in a right state with God. But the sons of God go into hellacious situations and they force the structure of God upon it. The kingdom of God breaks into the darkness and it overcomes it. You want to know when you have a son? When they go into a prison and turn it upside down. When they go into a hopeless situation and provide hope. When they've learned that nothing is too big for our God. Amen? Amen. Why don't we stand to our feet, church?